1: Hey, man, it's Tom, Cannabis Industry Lawyer. You can find me over at that uh, website or on this uh, YouTube channel. We're going to be talking about cannabis licenses today with Nick Easley from 3C Consulting going to be great. So if you're one of those entrepreneurs that wants to get a cannabis license, I'm going to put this one in the playlist, how to cannabis, check that one out. Uh, and of course, one of the requirements that you very often have to prove to get a license is that you're over 21. So let's get into it. Oh, what's up, everybody? Maggie's hey, hey. is up some herb and Nick Easley's joining us. How's it going, man?
2: Good afternoon. Uh seems like we're all in the Midwest, pretty much other than Illinois, not much cannabis things going on here, but I uh, find us here today. So uh, really, really honored to be here with you guys.
1: Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, why don't you introduce yourself and,
2: and, and tell the audience uh, what you do for a living? That's, that's kind of a, a long question there, but uh, I'll keep it brief. I'm Nick Easley. I'm the CEO of 3C Consulting, also Managing Director of Multiverse Capital. Uh, originally from farm country in Wisconsin, was a cryptolinguist for the Air Force, speak a variety of languages. Um, got heard and found Colorado in 2006, became a medical cannabis patient, and then started working for the first commercial licenses in Colorado and then other states. So we've done medical licenses 37 out of the 39 states and adult use work in 17 out of the 19 states and jurisdictions, including DC. So uh, work all over the US and all over the world mostly on getting cannabis licenses and starting new businesses. Nice. Nice.
1: Yep. Nick, and that's, uh, okay. I mean, it's great. No, I, I've known Nick for uh, over a couple of years now. Uh, they do great work. And so if you're into, uh, cause like he's opinionated, which is fun. And so like he, he likes to have a specific type of uh, facility that he would like to construct for his uh, cannabis. So what style of facility would you advise a possible cultivator, a cultivation license hopeful to consider?
2: Well, a lot's going to depend on like the country or the state. So if a state does allow like four season hybrid greenhouse, that's like my favorite to where you have like augmentation deprivation, Dutch Venlo style, like glass greenhouses. Still about a third of the cost to build an indoor, you know, compared to that and the OPEX is maybe a fifth of the cost. There can be huge HVAC dehumidification, CO2 needs. But when you look at the embodied energy of producing cannabis indoors compared to greenhouse, it's a much more expensive to build and operate those buildings and a lot more to ask of the planet. So when we see price compressions happening, which we caused in Colorado, California, Oregon, Washington, you name it. Coming soon
1: to your state.
2: I don't care how limited the market is. Yeah. Yeah. Your $3,000 pound indoor seems like a great idea until people are selling $1,000 pounds from greenhouse that costs them less than 200, including testing to do so. You know, we do some big, large outdoor Colorado operations, as well as Columbia and multiple countries. But four-season hybrid greenhouse for five harvests a year, CO2 augmented, um, really the highest quality flower at the lowest. So uh, that's usually what we recommend. I've done up to 300,000 square foot indoor facilities as well. But when I see the cost of production, the scalability, it's really hard to maintain that market share unless you're a kingpin where there's only so many licenses in a state. And you prevent new licenses from coming into that state. Not going to say that, you know, Illinois. Really? Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> I coughed that into the microphone. Yeah, you know, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida, some of the others. So you really have to think not just it's a cannabis license. You got cultivation. You're going to be able to do massive, you know, revenue. It's more of what do they use to produce other agricultural commodities? What's special about cannabis? How do we match agriculture and cannabis with what you can do with compliance? and maximize and focus on that scaling it out phase one two three four like never starting in a small building and having to move to another spot when you think about licensing you know any state if you're going for mississippi right now or thinking about alabama or florida mm-hmm. you wouldn't want to start with like a two acre site once you have parking and setbacks and fire turnaround truck spend five ten million bucks building a cultivation center demand grows you can't just add on more bays to the south or expand like you really have to have a site that'll allow you to start smaller and continually gradual up as the, the market demand requirements
3: i love that you brought up greenhouses though because no one ever talks about greenhouses even though like that's the origins pretty much of like the cannabis industry right like up in smoke you know it <laughs> wasn't like the greenhouse being raided or being watched uh, you know in many greenhouses and also greenhouses are diverse. whereas it doesn't it can be into like it's about light right that's what helps build the heat in the, in the greenhouse so if you're like in alaska you're only good for what six months out of the year but if you're in like you said rhode island or something but here in like a Washington state, you know, uh, right now, Tom and I were talking earlier and how it's getting more light out here again. So, and I really did myself a disservice as far as like, I have some clones that I just put in the windowsill. So, you know, the light cycle got really weird for them. And so they only grew up to, I think I'm growing a gram right now, but the the, the point is how, how do you avoid that in a greenhouse? Like the lighting situation, do you create like little dark areas first? Is that going to be part of the rotation that you're talking about?
2: Yes. Yeah, so, so in order, what, five days ago, pretty much like one of the most important days for agriculture, like the summer solstice, like the longest day of the year in the Northern hemisphere. And what that means then is like, I'm going to have way more than 12 hours of light and darkness. So, you know, traditionally cannabis, it germinates from seed. It does vegetative. The summer gets longer. And then like, oh, the days start getting shorter. And it knows, you know, I have to reproduce because I'm going to die here in about three, four months. Now, instead of us making the day a little shorter each day, what we do is we do vegetative for about 18 hours a day, and then we'll do flowering for 12 hours a day. So what we would do at this time is we have light curtains, dark blackout curtains that will completely automatically close on the top of the greenhouse, and it's pitch black in there at 7 o'clock at night. Those then open at 7 in the morning, so we have a photo period of 12 hours of darkness, 12 hours of light. Now in the winter, you know, December 21st, you might only have 8, 9 hours so the lights would turn on at like an hour and a half before sunrise. And then as soon as the sun's up high enough, those light meters would turn off the lights. Once the sun starts going down, the light meters notice that the micromoles are going down. So then these augmented lights turn on that kind of boost the light up so that they can have a 12 hour day for flowering. So we always add light augment for vegetative days, but then for flowering days, we're either like light deprivation, like blackout curtains, or we're adding a little light to always maintain those 12 hour days.
1: Yep. Pretty interesting. Light meters,
2: automations. Sounds like a fairly complex greenhouse that you you build. Four season hybrid greenhouses before coronavirus. Um, in the United States, I could build those all in for about 100 to 150 square foot. Based on coronavirus cost, delays, steel, glass, other things, I'm anywhere from like 150 to about 250 square foot. But indoor- Ridiculous. Okay, go. Yeah, he's getting to it, everybody. So, like, if you're thinking about
1: building an indoor, smash those likes, and then uh, Nick's gonna give you some truth on some numbers.
2: In indoor, if you were before coronavirus, two hundred and fifty to four hundred dollars a square foot, um, including like purchase price and renovations, that'd be pretty decent. Right now, I'm seeing closer to like three hundred to five hundred dollars a square foot. So even though like you're like, oh my gosh, four season hybrid greenhouse two fifty a square foot, that's including land parking lots, pipe work, rainwater collection, solar backup systems, like augmentation, deprivation, natural gas generators, like on and on and on. But these systems, they, when you think about cultivation, it's all about the environment. So where is the best place in your state? Let's say based on daytime highs, nighttime lows, frost-free days, where's there an opportunity zone? Nothing to do with cannabis. That's in a municipality that's opted in so that you can build something that's going to give investors massive like returns that they don't have to pay capital gains taxes on is going to be scalable because small scale indoor, it worked really well 10 years ago. But now when it comes to people producing 500 pounds a week in some of these greenhouse bays, if you're not able to do that, you can't compete. And no matter how good your flowers or amazing, your brand is, or uh, I'm know, the best grower
1: in the world. Uh. <laughs>
2: At the end of the day, if you're like top shelf eighth is $65 and ours is $25 and ours is sun grown and has a tenth of the environmental carbon footprint, I don't care if someone cares about the environment or not. Most people, about 95% of the time, vote with their dollars and what's consistent, what's readily available, what resonates with them. Some people will still buy cookies indoor. You know, it's great, great brand. But when there's something that's a third of the cost that's just as good, if not better, eventually consumers will dictate who stays around and that's all based on efficiency and cost
3: is there a climate that greenhouses are best in you know i mean i think they're diverse but is there like like versus the desert versus uh where i'm at the northwest you know uh you know rainforest land
2: <laughs> well you know greenhouses i've designed cannabis greenhouses all the way from alaska to near the equator in Colombia to the bottom tip of south africa Um, you know, we've, we've built over 60 acres of greenhouses for cannabis, um, in the United States and internationally, about 40 acres. Um, the biggest thing that I think about not only like opportunity zone because to build something new. I want to make sure the investors aren't going to have massive tax uh, hits. Humidity is the biggest thing though. Um, there's different styles of greenhouses from like cheap plastic hoop houses, all the way to like Dutch Venlo glass, polycarbonate styles that do all air filtrations So if you're in a really humid place you can't use like wet walls like swamp coolers that the air passes through i can do those in california arizona but once i'm in a humid place i have to have hvac air conditioning dehumidification air movement co2 enrichment integrated management associated with that so pretty much i could put a greenhouse anywhere it's just going to be more expensive to operate it or the systems would be more expensive to do it but when i look at florida for example where i'm you know, actively preparing for license work for these next rounds. The first greenhouse that Vitacan did back in the day, it had no ventilation, and they were growing poinsettias next to it, failing all their pesticide tests. And everyone thought, okay, like, hey, greenhouse won't work in Florida, look, Vitacan failed. It's like, they didn't have any, like, air movement systems, no mechanical, no anything, of course, they had mold. Well, yeah. when you build the right system, especially not in Orlando, like, let's say somewhere like in northern Florida, where you're 300 feet above elevation, you're not hurricane food near the ocean, and you're not in some like low lying swamp, humid place with alligators. You know, those, those few places in Northern Florida that had opted in, none of the existing operators from OMU have put their cultivation centers there. They're all in really expensive indoor down in central and Southern Florida, which is hot and humid as hell. So even indoors way more expensive to do, but the few wise people, hopefully self and some groups included, are going to be putting their cultivation centers in the best agricultural climate in the state because we can't import from other states to florida what we produce in florida has to be sold in florida now long term if you put a giant greenhouse in the wrong spot and federal legalization when it happens when you built a 10 acre greenhouse in maine well, your heating costs are going to be astronomical compared to somebody in arizona all those giant like in florida or others are in california like great climate great place but the tax rate so high. How is that going to be competitive long term? So, you know, if you're going for licensing, you have to think what's going to work for us now for the cultivation methodology, processing methodology. Never just think like I'm going to grow and sell my trim or raw material. Like the most valuable aspect of this industry, is soil to oil, growing cannabis, making oils and consumer packaged goods. Retail at the end of the day, you're buying someone for 50 bucks. You're selling it for a hundred. But if you, can help, you can't you can deduct any of it on your taxes, that's <laughs> yeah, still federally illegal, but we pay close to $10 billion a year in federal taxes. So that's, um, that's kind of saying something like they don't rate us as long as we pay our taxes. Uh,
3: so, but, yeah. you know, we kind of got diverted here on the greenhouse subject. Cause I find it amazing. I think it's an opportunity that people should think about, but you know, the subject here is cannabis and how you have three licenses, right? Like, like Tom said that you have, three you actually own Uh, he's
1: got licenses in places hundreds yeah yeah,
3: Yeah, but but i mean as far as like your your play right because the common person sees like msos as being the big players here what like how can the the average guy because you're a veteran and and you're someone who probably didn't come from a large bean so how did you get invested into this
2: some of the right place, right time. And it was, it was mostly like a selfless basis that I, I realized when Colorado went from like medical caregiver to the first commercial medical program where we could have like LLCs and go for licensing. I started with some of my friends, like there were caregivers saying like, hey, you guys got to like switch over and do this paperwork. So we started just navigating compliance. And yeah, like you know, from poor, poor means, disabled vet, bought some land. My house in Colorado still does you know, off the were part of the medical in colorado then yeah i started in medical in colorado 2006 and then did the caregiver program till 2008 helped to get some of the first medical commercial licenses 2008 forward probably did 100 plus licenses throughout california for groups and then by 2012 when we legalized recreational like regulate marijuana like alcohol um i helped to do some of those first licenses for some of the first stores and cultivators selling on january 1st 2014
1: nice yeah, i've been around i That's think right time Yes. very beneficial. I got
3: <laughs> in Illinois that <laughs> but that's the thing like so like Nick this is what uh, my, I find amazing about this whole uh, evolution of the industry right now and, and there's a lot of misconception right because we think anybody with money is a big creepy person that's already been in here but then again, medical when you have a lot of legacy people like yourself like you're a legacy Colorado medical and then in Washington state dude, there were so many opportunities like here in Washington, my, in my advocacy, I, I'm like, look, I don't want to grow the hamburger. I just want to go to the goddamn drive-thru and pick it up, right? Like, I don't want to – I'm growing a goddamn gram, right? Like, I want to be able to, like – I smoke more than a gram a day. Like, this – it's not sustainable for me. But when it was medical, there was lots of opportunities for me to even get involved. I could have grown clones. I could have sold it back. I could have reinvested in shit. But I wasn't thinking like that. I wasn't thinking this is my opportunity to be involved in what's going to be taken away, and and, and and like, so you had a really good opportunity with the medical, and your MSO is actually, or not MSO, I'm sorry, but your your business, your consulting business has actually been there and done that, which I think is kind of neat. That like, you see a lot of people just going, oh, I smoke a lot of weed, I can consult, <laughs> you know?
2: Yeah, we, we realized without licenses, nothing would happen. And then not all licenses have the same value. So how to ensure like whatever it takes from compliance, story, team building, and capital, because I saw great companies that could grow better weed than some of the largest MSOs out there, but they couldn't put together capital stacks and understand how to do property management companies that would own the buildings, triple net lease those to the operational companies. I see 420 blinking. I think this is exciting.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's 20 past the hour, and it is 420 in New York. So at that time, we take a small smoke break. Can we do a bumper?
2: Um, I need to...
3: That just really coincided to what I needed to smoke. <laughs> uh, but you know that's the problem here because like we, we're facing shadow banning and all that. That's why we use the bumper and then we use it to promote Tom's you know collateral base. Uh firm. people yeah, as far as most people don't know. I mean, he's an actual business. I'm just an advocate, man. Like I have nothing for sale except for I don't know, hugs. I don't know. I got shit. <laughs> You're selling hugs now, Miggy? Hey, you know what, dude? COVID. I'm taking risk. <laughs>
2: Well, I mean, the the thing is, we're we're all advocates in this space. I mean, even being on the board of directors of ASA now and being able to help work with with Americans for Safe Access, pushing bills in legal states, it all comes down to, like, you know, raising capital versus, like, raising donations. It's like fighting a war. And if you don't have bullets, you can't fight a war. And with cannabis, based on our tax problems with IRC-280E, the high cost of compliance and operations... If you don't know how to raise capital or put together financial models, you know, it's impossible to even take a good concept and get it to like proof proof of concept to like speed to market. So that that's like the biggest thing that we saw, like how to get licenses, how to help those people do that. And if you don't focus on the things outside of how good your weed is or how amazing your story is, and even the, the value and importance of social equity and diversity in the cannabis industry, that can't be your only selling point to bring in an investor. You have to be unique you have to be something that's got scale, and in this space, I mean, we're going to be larger than alcohol and tobacco combined long term. But the companies that can go through this bleeding stage of this next three to five years, um, or a little bit longer, and three saying, to five years, we're lucky. Yeah, I mean, like I, I
1: would have agreed with you, and then they strip safe banking out of the, uh, the the omnibus package, and I'm like, that was its only hope. You can't strip it out of that and say it's going to get through. Ugh. Yeah, so, we got yeah, three to five years.
2: Yeah, well, we got a little bit more bleeding. I've been saying five to nine years for federal legalization for probably the last five to nine years. And we're we're a little further away, but care, more, Schumer, I mean Blumenhauer's, you know, and Dana's originally like everything's been good and it helps things. And it's good for stocks, like for that press release value. But the main thing like to make us no longer applicable to IRC to ADE is if we amend our Controlled Substances Act to match the UN and the WHO, since it's been amended now for two years, and make us a Schedule 3, because IRC-280E is only applicable to Schedule 1 and Schedule 2 narcotics. So that, will boom, that changes everything and allows medical proliferation around the country.
1: Yep, that's how that stupid uh, provision of the tax law was written. Now, they could also just put an asterisk on it, because they do revise the tax code all the time. Just be like, except for uh, licensed marijuana sales, but they don't want to do that because yeah. the law's already screwy enough, um, and it really does suck because it only affects those two. But then all the federal crimes that are, arise from the banking uh, because you're in a Schedule One substance, the way that the banking uh, federal crimes are, are written, I just can't believe that they just can't cross out the word marijuana and tetrahydrocannabinols from the Controlled Substances Act and move on. I mean, talk about a one-page bill. It mm-hmm. would just be Cross It Out Act, the Cross It Out Act. But what about all the other stuff? You know we're going to regulate all that other crap. That'll be coming, but only after it's legal, you know?
3: well, Let so the de- people out of prison, for crying out loud. Descheduling, but I think unscheduled, right? Like, why is it even, like, where's alcohol and tobacco? Are they on the schedule? No, they're
1: regulated by a different bureau.
3: But again, Why? Why? It, it, you know we're, we're talking about a controlled substance uh, act like this is about everything it's a blanket you know what are those are, are they are magically not substances you know this is not a but you know Nick you've been how you've seen it though because here in Washington the regulation uh there was lack of in, in medical right and that's why I got rolled over and, and and just ran over because a lot of people saw dollar signs but even you know, when when Tom and I talk about regulation yeah, it's we think as kids, you know, like, oh, I buy a quarter pound. I just want to be able to sell this quarter pound without going to jail, you know. But to do that, I'd have to originally buy that quarter pound from a, a lower selling market, you know, licensed and, and then pay my little 10 percent tax fee and then sell that back with the markup because I'm trying to get my money back. Plus the taxes I sold on that. So, like, regulation not as easy as we think it is when you're just like, man, we just legalize it, <laughs> you
2: know, because the beer. Yeah, you
3: know, you know when you buy your beer, those guys have licenses and all the same shit.
2: Yeah, with or distrib- Viagra. It's, it's very similar when you look at like liquor distribution licenses. That's like really what determines whose beer gets from one state or craft beer gets to another. We're going to see some massive changes like that when federal legalization happens. How this like individual roll- rollout of like state by state states' rights will play out, and then there's going to be protective clauses on some of these industries that created some pretty large Titans, even though their stocks don't look like they're Titans right now, but they're going to, one thing that I do like about looking at their stock prices, they're finally starting to have an EPS.
1: That's not like X, you know? So it's like, (laughs) Like Hey, look, it's actually a 38 uh, earnings per share or something like that. So you're starting to see multipliers that aren't just, Oh, this is a mythical unicorn dragon that will continue to grow perpetually. You know?
2: Exactly. But th- those companies now that even though most of those MSOs have about 60 to 65% of the market share of all the, the cannabis licenses and jurisdictions um, that are actually doing revenue, granted, there's tons more licenses in Oregon, Washington, that are not part of those organizations, but the limited license states, which are nearly 80% of those states, and most new states are limited, like, even though North Carolina bill, the House is probably not going to vote on it this next week, which is really sad, seeing that The Senate passed it. But that was going to do 10 licenses for full verticals. So when you think about it. yeah, like the, whole state. the whole state and that sadly, the Tim Moore and some of the others are not going to vote on something that the Senate's already voted and passed and brought to them. Um, it's really, really un- unfortunate for medical patients there long term. But when you think about Alabama, it's going to be very similar, only a few verticals, but Mississippi. Tons of licenses, but yep. churches just dis- disqualifies about ninety five percent of all the real estate in the state. So churches trying to- do. Oh, churches! They're twenty 500- five hundred. Setback for churches. Oh my goodness, that yes. would be a data visualization to watch. Uh, we we've, we've made that database, and uh, I did the same thing for North Carolina. Twenty five hundred feet for churches was part of that that act. And when you look at that, like door to door, you can get waivers from cities if they say. But even a thousand feet from a church in Mississippi that knocks out about 90% of all retail zone properties in the entire state. So when when we're navigating state by state, or thinking where's a license that's gonna be valuable. Somebody might have a cultivation license for sale in Oklahoma right now. I don't care when there's thousands of licenses and no central distribution. But if it's a state like Florida or Alabama, or a few that are only gonna have very limited licenses, that's where it's so critical to find a position, find those investors and others that are gonna be able to help you like execute on that plan because you won't win licenses anymore in these states unless you can show financial backing. Even if you're social equity, you got to find people that bring all of those stone soup components to the table, no pun intended. And then you got to tell us the thing that's possible. But if it's just the social equity story or just the money story or just the yeah. story, you got to have all of those things come together to be perfect. Yeah. The you, perfect applications. That's where it's at. No, uh, perfect. Sometimes the states don't grade them or just choose their
1: friends. That happens. Correct. And you can have a perfect application that's complete. Like, you know, it touches all the bases. If there was points, you have them. Now, unless, of course, they start adding in points regarding money, because there's one thing about buying a perfect application. It's like, no, here's a complete application. It may not work as well for you because you're just a guy. But uh, yes. that happens. And then how do you like screen then for and it's difficult. I mean, there's very few people that are out there that are actually uh, ready to take on a Florida license, especially with all the crap that a Florida
2: license entails. Yeah. And so like that Florida program, it's kind of unique. Everyone thinks about truly even med Men and Cureleaf that like have really taken that market. But Florida, Florida through the, uh, the OMU originally only had 19 licenses. They did the pigford license, which we should hear about any day. It's like the, the African-American mm-hmm. farmer license because they're like, Oh shoot. We gave all the licenses to 19 rich ass citrus farmers Let's like do some diversity. Even though that's taken three years to get there for one license, there's twelve applicants currently. I heard it got knocked down to six that are still remaining, and um, so there'll be one license for that. They did charge more for that license than any others, but this is um, yeah Act, Act or Amendment Two, the Florida law for medical cannabis. It says when the Omu got to seven hundred thousand registered patients, they had to issue an additional nineteen licenses. Um, now the state's actually said, we're going to issue 22. I'm hoping that means there's going to be some social equity provisions, but if you're interested in Florida, it's a King or a queen maker license. Once you get your vertical, you have cultivation, manufacturing, and one retail spot required to get that. Once you have that state license, though, you find another compliant property in a city, you get a second dispensary, a third, 120th in like truly of state. So they're, they're taking the state as we speak. And they're now at 732,000 medical patients as of last this Friday and adding about 3,000 a week. So now the state's six weeks behind issuing these new licenses. But here's the the nitty gritty. If you want to go for Florida, you have to apply with a company that has five years of history in Florida. Um, Oh, good.
1: I'm filing the dormant commerce clause suit as we speak.
2: Well, Uh, seriously. um, but that's, it's a requirement in many states and that, that actually not a lawyer here, but like that, that argument's been used and lost uh, in Florida because they're a very agricultural minded state. First round, you had to have a 30 year citrus farmer as part of your organization. Second round, a 25 year citrus manufacturing partner. Um, This year it's uh, like low crop experience, but you have to have a medical director that has very voluminous experience, cultivation director, manufacturing director, retail director, medical advisory board audited financials for five years for that full Jesus Christ. Five but, million dollar type bonds. showing it be a serious license? It, it's serious it's license. Crazy. I've seen those licenses
1: sell.
3: Uh, so, hey, hey uh, hang on.
1: The, the, your audio kind of cut out there. Can you say <laughs> the number of millions of dollars that you've seen these licenses sell for again?
2: Over 80 million. million. Eighty-one. 80 million, million, everybody. Today. Yeah, there, yeah. There, oh, there, Work almost 247 million cash for a tie for selling that. It's one of the five cultivation licenses in New York before the governor signed that hemp bill, giving all the hemp farmers cultivation licenses for cannabis, which was still kind of like <laughs> what
3: happened there.
1: Um, yeah. I hear, and I hear next week processors. And how do you get a processor license? You were a hemp processor. Yep. For the first Great. round. Exactly. Yeah. But when But living- in Florida,
3: those licenses in Florida, are they vertical licenses? Or are they just uh, grows? Vertical. So 25.
2: 25- <laughs> Yeah, you have to have cultivation, manufacturing, and one retail to get that license. But then once you do that, you can get 40, 50, 120 retail locations as part of that one license. So this will be the last round. And this is my opinion here. This isn't fact, but I'm not guessing, let's say. Um, this will be the last round of like vertical licenses in Florida when adult use happens You know, in the future, a year, year and a half, which it will. Um, then they're going to issue, like, kind of like Illinois, like new little classes of licenses. And here's like a small cultivation or a manufacturing only or like one mm-hmm. retail or maybe like home delivery. But the delivery licenses in Florida, you can do that as part of your vertical. And it's not like some states where you can only de- deliver to someone's home address. I could deliver to a Taco John's parking lot and have 20 people waiting for me. And just, oh, like, that'd be awesome. Florida is the most non compliant, easiest, and best for patients, not so much the safest. But there haven't been many instances of that but it's nothing like massachusetts like where you have to have body cameras on two people 250 dollars a product or cash in the time at one time no more so florida's ridiculous if you're looking to get into it you have to look at what were the last two license rounds like what's the pigford license look like that was due in march that they'll announce almost any day and how to have a very diverse five-year company with all of that experience you have to have properties under contract like with site entitlements and they have to be compliant but florida this will be the last round of like the big ones and most people that did it early even though we think they're titans, like truly even others they did very inefficient indoor cultivations they had massive crop failures the cost of production is way high they're growing where it's hot as hell or they flower during the day instead of at night for people like power costs so florida is the time to like think about if you're gonna do it we don't have to repeat the same mistakes of the past, but still a cultivation manufacturing facility. You're going to be looking at 20 to 40 maybe $50 million of like capital expenditures in order to do that. So, um, and greenhouses don't finance as easily as brick-and-mortar buildings, do they? Um, new build ones surprisingly do. Um, like Focus Gross, Power Read, a lot of the cannabis-specific real estate investment trusts or private high-net-worth investors or family offices that do that, they know... Not only does the greenhouse tell the ESG, like environmental social story, they also know that long term, this asset compared to me putting 30, 40, 50 million dollars into an indoor brick building. If they can't grow cannabis to save their life, somebody could grow basil, aromatic herbs, tomatoes, peppers, other crops, microgreens. An indoor cultivation facility, though, it has no value outside of cannabis based on the large cost of production.
1: Yeah, Price per pound, trying to get that like sub $600 in an indoor facility. Yeah, it's good
2: luck on that. Yeah. Yeah, if you look at cannabis benchmarks, you know, side note, you know, part owner helped to start that years ago. But when you look at the cost of production of indoor versus greenhouse or outdoor in some of these states and what the current market spot price is, I mean, in Colorado right now, you could buy a wholesale pound of the most fire best cannabis you've ever seen for less than $800. That same pound, you know, in New York would be selling for 2400 3400 3200 It's just where it's being sold is kind of like the issue. But if your cost of production on a cultivation standpoint is over $400, you're a dinosaur already. A meteor is hitting the Yucatan and you're like, oh, look at that pretty shooting star. And like, everything's going to be great tomorrow. Like, yay. But realistically, yeah. you're extinct. So you have to be thinking about that long term. Can you
3: <laughs> can you do the Laird grows and greenhouses? You know how sometimes uh, somebody's building indoor grows, doing a, the tiered grows. Can you do that? Is the, are there grows big enough
2: like that? houses? You can, but um, you know the sun is most important. Um, so, like, imagine a greenhouse is like a giant solar panel. Like by that thermal mass and being able to have direct sunlight come into it, like with good southern exposure, that's what's most important. Now, as part of a greenhouse, we will have indoor rooms under metal roof that have stock plants or mother plants, really vegetative, like V1, the cloning, V2, like when they're in a small little four by four, like nursery container, will then harden those off, like get them used to natural light back in the artificial. Like Most people don't know if you took an indoor plant outside at 10, 11, noon, anytime, put it outside for like five, 10 minutes, that plant's going to die because it's never had full spectrum light. You're like, ah, I was on life support and now I'm like eating and you yep. just, they die. So we have to harden off plants and get them used to that. But in a greenhouse, anytime, even I've seen asinine growers use those like four foot wide, four foot LEDs that just like shade the whole greenhouse thinking like, oh, we're going to have multi-spectrum. It's great. It's more of when you lay vegetative or flower, those are single level, but we'll do multi-level in like the early vegetative stage. But we don't want shadowing. Yeah, there's greenhouses that have these benches that do this. Okay. We want to keep greenhouses just like any cultivation facility, single level. When you have to do multi-level and have ADA, you've got water upstairs, water downstairs, power everywhere, HVAC, like retrofits that are double level, I won't even do them anymore. It's um, too expensive and they're, they're not scalable. It's not worth it, eh? Yeah. Hey. De- depending on the state, but some states originally wouldn't allow greenhouse. Like Pennsylvania and other states, we had to educate the regulators on this, like four walls and a roof. They're not just going to throw rocks and get next to the greenhouse and like run away with a bunch of weed. Um, yeah. they we're more worried about employee theft or like being the transporters having an issue, but not actually at the greenhouse themselves. But any operator currently, like we went indoors to hide when this was made illegal, but most cultivators a long time ago would grow outside. So our technology as cannabis growers really evolved indoors. Most people just don't have the foresight to look forward and think like, actually, how we know how to do this is just because of the situation now that we can do this in the sun again like large scale indoor long term that's where all oils come from for edibles you know either from columbia or big states where it's just massive combines like flour outside with no co2 but great for oil IUV uv content but then most large scale flower operations long term where you can do co2 it's going to be from these four season hybrid greenhouses Yep,
1: that's going to be interesting to see. And it's going to take years. And I always kind of, uh, people love the financial models where it's just up and to the right and we're going to be printing all this money and they just, they want to believe them so badly. And so uh, they don't get the next steps, like after they get the license and they get that facility that they're going to sink like $20 million into and they're going to be paying like six to $700 a pound and they're going to be selling it for like 3000 a pound. And then it's like, well, what happens when this happens? Well, what happens when that happens? None of that is considered, yeah. uh, which is, is kind of interesting. Uh, many of the people that when I you know, say, well, what type of uh, facility do you want to design? Well, I'm just trying to put the, the application and your, your company together. You know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you how to run your business. Uh, I, I could, but I, you, know, it's, you, you ask for help, you know. Um, so it's it's a lot. Everybody still wants to grow indoor and trying to talk somebody into a, a greenhouse Uh, You sometimes it's you have to actually convince them of it. Like they they're shocked, and I'm like, "What do you mean? How are you shocked? This plant for thousands of years grew in the sun. It wasn't like magically growing in somebody's basement. Well, you know, sure, you had like taken all the stress from it, so like it's not going to get hail or wind damage or, or anything like that. But what do you think a greenhouse does? You know, it's, it's going to be preventing all those things. So you still got to control the environment to a large degree. But, you know, you, you get the sun.
2: The most important thing when it comes to cultivation, when you think about nerdy Bill Nye, the science guy, you know, go back to middle school and like, oh, like photosynthesis, like chlorophyll, more like borophyll. But like photosynthesis, it takes sunlight and water and CO2 and makes glucose and oxygen. So the more CO2 I have, the more sunlight or water, it's not about some fancy spectrum of this or it's not about like, I have more phosphorus during this stage or this magic little thing that doubles my production. But when you can do CO2 augmentation and get that up to 1500 parts per million in a flowering greenhouse, you're you're literally producing about 30% more biomass and the quality flower, like more linked uh, internodes, like better flowers. So... We can't do that outdoors and you can do it indoors, but it just costs you four to five times more to do it. And the thing, the bleeding heart environmentalist in me, I remember standing outside Live Livewell's cultivation center in Denver years and years ago and watching these coal cars just going by. And I did the equations and I found out, I'm like, wow, like every gram of indoor cannabis takes over 21 pounds of coal to make that amount of electricity just to Not even the HVAC or the manufacturing of the scissors or the light bulbs or the kids making this thing in China or that. Like, so every time you're like, I love the earth and you smoke a joint of indoor weed, that's 21 pounds of coal worth of electricity. You just ask from the planet so that you can literally have a weed to smoke. And we can do that. We can do it outdoor. So we start, we really got to start doing consumer education on this, but at the end of the day, most consumers might not care. That's fine. If we can make the good choices for them, it's also better for business. Like if I produce something that's high quality, lower than the cost of my competitors, and it's way more environmental and safer for my workers, I'm going to take the market share by undercutting them on price. And eventually that's, we've been trying to put Indoor out of business for over a decade. It's my company, just because it is an environmental atrocity. And most people, like you said, Tom, they don't have the courage to look at other cultivation methodologies. And that's why there's so much embodied energy in um, in the industry that's not working out pretty well. Have Good you done
1: Okay. It's the sun grown that you can get from California or other locations in, in the uh, United States that are amenable towards outdoor growth, outdoor that's just so much more vibrant. It just has so much more flavor. Um, and I don't know. I just think it's because people uh, have this real geeked out kind of nature when they see a rig that's indoors. They're just like, wow, there's so much science going on. And they like that.
3: And they, you know, they don't want to
1: go back to like the sun. I don't need the sun.
3: Well, I think it's cleaner too, right? There's this misconception that it's grown in this like little lab. It's cleaner. But uh, Nick, has there been a study perhaps on like uh, a greenhouse being next to a hemp grow and cross pollination? Has that been looked at?
2: Definitely a big problem. Yeah. So, you know, Just like the males of our species were the troublemakers, it's the same with cannabis. It's a dioecious plant. So it has a girl house and a boy house for the sex. And no matter what you try to do, like to keep us away from like the nunnery or whatever, like we're going to find a way in. Um, So with cannabis, we just have to be really smart with our facilities. One, like when I worked in Portugal, I was said, you know, you should have your hemp grows on this part of the country and your cannabis grows in like these parts of the country because they can cross pollinate. We always don't get that lucky so whenever there are hemp existing operations or i'm scared of pesticide drift or other things we'll have uv um lights like in our intake ducts that are denaturing the dna of any viable pollen you know you could always have an employee come into work put in their uniform and have a pocket full of pollen and just throw that around some flowering plants and literally f all of your plants a little bioterrorism He's a employee by the way we've seen it at operations but most wow that's why we need to talk about the employee handbook policy plants. <laughs> and uniforms and bag checks and not letting them out
3: seriously. Either.
2: Wow. Oh, seen that we've also in the seen the industry. A disgruntled employee take mycobutanol, Eagle Twenty, and spray it all over dried curing cannabis so that they would fail pesticide tests and like have bad press. I've seen that too. But um yeah, in, in this space, like any of those outside like threats be. From integrated pest management, from viable pollen, pesticide drift, um, those things have to be thought about and isolated from the type of greenhouse entity. You think about Green Dragons uh, greenhouse in Denver. You know, it's right next to I twenty five, so it has all the exhaust of all the cars going right into the greenhouse. But you can walk on a sidewalk two feet away from their intake ducts that are directly into their greenhouse. So I'm like, hmm. I just like take pollen. I would never do this, but. Those are sorts of risks you have to consider, even if it's natural, it's human done. And the same sorts of risks can exist for manufacturing or for dispensaries. But for greenhouses, you do have that drift. But Indoor has those same problems if they don't have really good air scrubbers, UV in the ducts and like closed air handling systems.
1: Mm -hmm. Crazy. I just uh, say the human element of the industry by far the worst element of it, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. most of the problems from the laws to the regulation to the disgruntled employees or the bullshit partners, everybody's just pissed for whatever reason. Um, all human
2: element of the plant, you know, well, but, but still we punish it. I don't get it. The, the thing that we do now, like what, what I've learned and you know, even though all my military experience, ag experience as a kid, none of it was like based on cannabis, but I, I love the cultivation part. Sadly, that's the part I hardly get to do anymore Because what I've realized to do this industry well, you need a certain piece of paper that allows you to do this so that you're not just like breaking the law. If you're going to do that, just know that the risks for the illicit market, I still have friends in that space, you know, not that I could remember who they are, of course, but uh, they're taking massive risks that are like bigger risks than before for less gains. It's never who you sell it to. That's the problem. It's like who they sell it to or where it comes back down or some angry girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever it might be. I mean, I know more people that would take a 24-hour risk driving from one side of the country to the other with something than would grow something illegally in a state for six months and potentially get caught with a bunch of baby skunks in their basement. you know? Mm -hmm. It's sad that we have to be in this position now, but the most important thing for this industry now that's going to give you value is the piece of paper, the license to cultivate, manufacture, deliver, sell, test, whatever it might be, And doing whatever it takes to maintain the compliance for that and i mean tom knows this i know this all too well licenses are more and more competitive than they've ever been and in these new states you've got people in that state that have been waiting to do it patient right groups that are excited to do this for the right reason farmers in that states people have drug crimes in that state that want to do this plus all the multi-state operators that want that state and the single state operators that want that state so what used to be 90 applications for 10 licenses might be 900 applications for like 10 licenses. So nope. you've got to know the rules. Just like I said, the Florida, like if you don't have a five-year-old company, you can't, you can apply. You're disqualified. Yeah.
1: You can have a perfect application. But the only, the only problem is you don't have that five-year window. That's when we sue for the violation of the Dorm of Commerce Clause because you are clearly being prejudiced. Well, if, especially if you're an out-of-state actor. If you're an in-state actor, I'm not sure if you have standing to raise the issue. Uh, and so, like, if you're in, somebody who's operating in California and you want to operate in
2: Florida and they won't let you. Well, you know? there's your big problem, though, Tom. If you're a California entity and then you actually apply for a cannabis license in another state, you're now subject to RICO. Not like your buddy, RICO, but, like racketeering and like mom stuff.
3: But again, That's, it's all about
1: those. And the, the money is still there. there. Yeah. The money If it's medical, but if so like what? So if you're in California and you reach out for the Mississippi medical, mm-hmm. then at least we'd be able to say, but there's precedent that says, hey, hey, get out of here. Get out of my stuff. You got to give me an evidentiary hearing
2: to make sure that I'm actually violating the medical laws. But you would, yeah. anytime, if you're going for a new license in a new state, if they don't have the clause like Florida, where it's a five-year Florida company, you always want to make a brand new entity in that, in that state. Her jurisdiction to limit and like the risk to that state. But also remember the state's allowing you to break federal law in their state. How can a state allow a foreign corporation from a different state or country to violate federal law within their state under a state law? So that's where it's like knowing the rules to play the game. That's why, I mean, some of the lawyers on this call on your network, Tom, have done great for our clients and others in the past. And anyone that's looking at this space, like really good knowledge about the space and legal understanding of it to like cover your ass before you actually put everything on the line and realize that you forgot one detail. And now like you're getting sued, you're losing your license or you're going to jail because at the end of the day, it's still federally illegal. And it's not just this massive opportunity we have. It's a huge responsibility because these new states They're trying to figure out how to regulate this. The federal government, OSHA, FDA, USDA, they're not giving guidance to cannabis operators in states. And even if we had a state lawsuit that then like goes past the state Supreme Court and goes to the federal Supreme Court, since it's federally illegal, they're not even going to hear it. So that's why most of the Illinois lawsuits aren't ever going to make it anywhere because they're state jurisdiction courts. And somebody kind of tells the state courts what's to do in Illinois or multiple states. But
1: uh, yeah, there's all those things. It's going to be an interesting thing that gets ironed out. But the Dorma Commerce Clause says states aren't allowed to prejudice one another and all of these things, they're all prejudicing that state and self-dealing for that state in violation of this Dorma Commerce Clause. And so it's a meritorious argument. But will that eventually be something that helps it? Because uh, if Congress isn't going to do the job, will the Supreme Court strike it out? Just be like, this makes absolutely no sense. And, you know, they didn't, they didn't do this as much, you know, prior to like 1930s uh, with their ability to just allow. And then the Wickard v. Philburn, like the, the huge amount of supremacy for the Commerce Clause. But, you know, the court's going backwards. So maybe they'll go further backwards to like freedom of contract and shit. And be like, hey, don't tell me how many people I could put into this bakery for how many hours. Uh cool.
2: It's it's giving the point. It's really unique. I mean, the things that we're seeing federally and even like this last week with like Supreme court kind of announcements, it was one of those things you're like, wow, we're a little bit more concerned about things that used to just be like, you know, normal and and accepted. And, And even without the cannabis industry happening, I mean, so many of us on that day had to think like, what's this mean then? How do we still honor human rights as our companies and allow something to happen or facilitate this for our employees and our families without actually potentially breaking another federal law or less. you would
3: think at a time though when women lose rights and guns gains rights like in between we could just find a way to be legal like like something that's overall for everybody like any prohibition has proven to be a total failure how do you guys think that it'll be like viewed in the future as far as like this is one of those laws that prove like law in itself, is a construct right where we're law abiding we all agree we're gonna abide by this as citizens uh but yet like when it's medical i have the affirmative defense but when it's now recreational i have the paperwork defense at what level does the law become like it's fucking a law like it's like a known like let's not put people behind bars like common citizenry we agree like you know, I can look at a cop. You know, we have this fear about, like, you know, the cops. The only thing that fucking I'm scared about cops is because of weed when I'm out on the road. There's no other reason why I'd be afraid of any can't other can't be fucking person. with you if it wasn't for the weed laws. Pretty much. There's Very nothing I do. I mean, slow driving sometimes, fast driving. There's not – I don't do shit. You know, I mean, <laughs> at least not worth going to jail for. I'm not saying I'm a perfect person, but Jesus.
2: Well, it's just uh, in the glorious words of one of my good lawyers back in the day's you know, he didn't advocate breaking the law, but he's like, if you were to break a law, you would only want to break one law at a time. So, like, don't be drunk and speeding, or, like, smoking cannabis and speeding and drunk, but you should never do any of those things at the same time anyways, or singular. But if you're going to do something weird, only do one weird thing at a time.
1: Exactly. Wow. Every- Take it one crime at a time, everybody in the industry. You know,
3: At least uh, one way everybody agrees upon it, because that's what you have to do, because this is what it is. It's a crime that we all agree upon, but then... At the same token, we don't all agree
1: people. upon it. Just
3: it's one I mean, of the it's one of the reasons we participated. Though
1: we participated in, uh, uh, unwillingly, we're unwilling participants in this. Yeah. We're trying to, the best we can to figure out how can we end this yet. How about now? How about now? You know, and it, it's just not going to get done because once you make something a crime, you're actively overt. Like the the policy is suppression, and yeah. and so like you can't get your rights. Because the you're advocating for crimes, like you're advocating for the bad thing that they said we aren't going to be doing, Uh, and then people out there with church, they're they're telling their parishioners this is a bad product to use and they shouldn't be doing that. Like, church should not be in our uh, laws at all
2: because that's what Saudi Arabia does. We we try to avoid that, you know. We we've got a unique opportunity here where. You know, it's hard, especially like seeing what we just worked for over a year in North Carolina putting together with like Senate Bill 711, the Compassionate Care Act. And then all of a sudden, they're not going to vote on it. But, you know, we have to allow doctors to make decisions about health care for their patients. Like, we don't right. need to make decisions about body as a government, like allowing a doctor or an individual. So, any of these state rights, whenever it comes to state medical cannabis programs, I'm a big proponent of adult use as well. But at the end of the day, as a disabled veteran, like my main focus and mission is making sure that all medical patients that would need safe access to cannabis in the United States and the globe have access to it. Adult use will come because we realize it's medicine for all of us and it should have always been legal. But step-by-step, if you start with a medical focus, medical advisory board, medical standards, and also know no matter what you're doing in the space as an individual, like there's others just like you. And we are stronger together with our voices and our petitions and also in how you do applications and business plans. So even though like you you might go to a conference and there's a lot of people all trying to get into that same market, let's say you might not have all the missing pieces to do that. I'd almost guarantee you don't. So it's always who's left of you, who's right of you. You need finance. You need somebody with ID verification experience, someone with legal experience, somebody that has, you know, good diversity kind of background for like You know, company employees and titles, like whatever it is, just get strong, get together. And the more that we work together, like the larger your chances of like success in these markets are going to be. But when you go in alone and just kind of get angry about the laws and think you're going to like win one of these licenses because you've got one of these pieces. You got to have so much good diversity, so much experience now to do this and pull it off.
3: You need a team. I mean, we're talking about uh, uh, an industry that is being created as we go. This did not exist when I was 20, you know, and if it did, I would have figured out how to get into it instead of what I do now. I'm working in tech. But regardless, you know, it's here, it's being created, we're, we're further than we were before, but people need to understand that that piece of paper is essential to like creating the, the industry. You know, like you're saying, you know, you need a, a lawyer to help provide with the backbone. You need someone, if you have someone with sales experience in your, on your family, like Like Nick, you were saying when you got started, you got friends together, right? So, financial gathering. What they say when you invest in something, you get your friends, you ask for your friends and family first because you know they don't invest with you. Who's gonna?
2: Yeah, yeah, friends and family is a good place to start with. And in early days, they didn't have all the voluminous, um, experience like required on these apps. You're property compliant. Do you have the sort of background? Are you like a resident? Because residency was always a huge thing in these new states back in the day, which is now not the case. It's been thrown out in Missouri and multiple other markets. Also, another thing to look at, like, if you don't have those residency points as part of your team, like Alabama, like they're giving very few verticals. 51% of the owners have 15-year residents of a state like that. Wow. I don't have that. I can't do it. No, that doesn't mean you can't do it. It means you need to find some homies. That have that experience in but that
1: them. means they got to give up control, Nick, and they don't necessarily want to do that every day.
2: They want to. It's it's theirs. Well, theirs. yeah, that's the thing like even Jeff Bezos, like he's got a board. He owns less than twenty percent of a company he founded and co-founded. So we only do things strong and big together. And like all big things started small. Even if one person did it and it owned hundred percent, would you rather have a hundred percent of a personal pizza? or 15% of a pizza the size of the Astrodome, or, you know, some giant place, right, the scale. So if you don't have those experiences, there's always ways that you can put in operational controls, either through the operating agreement, employee handbooks day to day, what does the board vote on the voting of shares. So when I read a definition, even though I'm not a lawyer, 51% of the owners must be, you know, 15 years there, you're like, okay, doesn't mean that those owners are going to have Class A voting shares doesn't mean they're going to have C-suite titles or have anything to do with the day-to-day operations, but it would meet the definition that 51% of them are owners. And therefore compliant, and you get the points. Exactly. So sometimes you might have a weird requirement, but you got to know the rules to play that game. Never work around something. Never, never, ever lie on an application. Like Not only could you go to prison for that, but if you end up... Finding out later that you lost a license over something that like you you fibbed on. I've seen this happen for teams. They'll take it away. And every time that you apply in a new jurisdiction, they're going to say, where have you lost a license before? I've never lost a single cannabis license out of over 250, you know, US and international. But anytime you lose one for compliance, you have to report it on each and every app. And Do you think they're going to give you a new license if you lost a license for non-compliance? Damn. Right. And why did
1: you lose that license? Ah, uh, yeah, but uh, and that, that may happen. There's uh, some of the 40 that got released last year for the craft grows. Their 20 to $40,000 payments are coming up in uh, a month. And they're, I'm sure that
2: some of the teams don't have it. But, you know. Uh, multiverse Capital, we've definitely had some interest from teams just to pay the renewal fees on either transport or craft grows that haven't done anything since they were issued those licenses. And granted, Illinois is a program that is kind of scary when's that 5000 square foot going to you know increase you know when are the why did all of the big MSOs get transport licenses and social equity re, worked hard for transport licenses and then now have no value in that mm-hmm. and that, that's why a- did certain
1: ones get more than one craft grow
2: why would you have applied twice if you knew that you could only have one license well, you could have ownership in up to three craft grows if you read those rules correctly, which to me, I'm like, just because Then why
1: would you apply three times
2: in yeah. the first
3: round? Should have yeah, been. That's what I'm saying. Odds, right? It's all about the odds. But then, then again, if, right. like like you're saying for like Alabama versus the MSO outside, right? Guaranteed there's somebody with 15 years' residency, some 15-year consumer who's been like, man, oh, yeah. I, want I want to be in the weed business all my life. And then you got this big, creepy MSO and saying, hey, we you sign this contract, but Number one, have someone read, have a lawyer read the contract. Uh, Nick, I don't know if you're familiar with a, a, an old activist here in the Oregon area, uh, uh, Paul Stanford. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So are you familiar with his saga, how he actually lost name, his name and everything? So like, yeah, the company that he went and visited with expanded their stocks, did some weird back-ass weird shit that I don't understand. But they made him a non-entity when it came to votes, which is like, have a lawyer read your shit. <laughs>
2: It's critical. Some of those things called like fat shares and others, or different classes of shares. Um, you know, a common thing that we'll have to deal with with like, oh, you couldn't sell the license for like, let's say, thirty-six months or something, and it has to be the original owners. Well, how do you raise capital or equity investment into that? And the way that you'll do that is through like a convertible note. You can also have one of those original owners pledge their units as collateral as a contingency-based finance agreement. So you're still compliant, and then that can trigger to change equity after like that that period or that window there's always a way to deal with some of those clauses. Just never do any backdoor stuff, side letters or like, all right, Jim, you're going to hold this equity for me. And then in three years, like you're mm-hmm. going to to me. It's like those sorts of contracts, verbal or not can be very dangerous and can make you lose a license too. Just once you go into the compliance side of this, from like the illicit side to compliance side, it's all about compliance and there's never like walking between the worlds. It's one or the other. You can't have a foot in each world. It's all about one or the other. And if you come into the compliance side, just know it's going to be bigger, more fruitful, less risk, and actually viable business long term that you can talk about. Other than like, I grow cows and sell tomatoes in the farmer's market, even though everyone knows you don't have any cows or tomatoes. All about that compliance.
1: It's a it's a very interesting industry, and it's very capital intensive. And a lot of the people that call are the the startups that are very interested at that tertiary level, where they're just starting to call somebody. They're shocked to find this out. Um, How do you
2: handle that when uh, the people just are just what? How? Yeah. Well, it's one of those things that you know somebody normally said like, oh, I could open a dispensary for like you know quarter million, half a million bucks. I'm like no you actually can't <laughs> thank you like let's first think down like the real estate and let's just be fair and say like you're gonna buy a building let's say for a quarter million dollars perfect that building to get it compliant furniture fixtures and equipment pre-construction site work engineering environmental assessments traffic impact studies lights counters fire suppression systems security systems that's that's on average about a half a million dollars for us for each dispensary. like waiting rooms bulletproof glass security cameras and everything so Quarter million by the building, half a million to like retrofit it, like to like building permit architects, engineers, lawyers, you know, land use attorneys, you name it. So now we're at 750 grand for the prop code in that, you know, example of a retrofit. Now the op code, the dispensary itself, I don't ever like to start a dispensary with less than half a million dollars of operating expenditures, like staffing, marketing, branding, hoodie design, my package design, my floor mats with my logos on them. The website the leafly listings the weed map listings like the printed pamphlets you know the, the staff the toilet paper for the bathrooms like landscaping trash costs like i need at least half a million of opex to get to cash flow positive but here's the really fun one half a million dollars of initial inventory you think someone's just gonna front you like oh, oh shit so you can get debt financing now for inventory purchases about eight to twelve percent based on credit but normally someone's like, yeah, I could do this for like quarter, half a million bucks. I'm like, well, I just showed you your prop co. there. That's 750. Your op code is a million. So 1.75 million for two companies to start a dispensary. You're like, what? But that's enough to cover the debt, have staff, hire good people, have benefits, employee packages, packaging, marketing, online ordering abilities, pre-order pickup, security, compliance, lawyers for your license. Like that's where, yeah, like... 10 years ago yeah I could start a dispensary for a quarter million bucks. I couldn't even in some markets work to get a license and get started for a quarter million dollars. Yeah. Nice property.
1: Florida especially I'm sure but um what that's is- the industry guys you know it- Thanks for tuning in.
2: <laughs> the application fee for the ones that I'm talking about right now, it's a hundred and fifty thousand dollar non-refundable application fee. Non-refundable. I wow. could say that would really be a barrier to entry for like minorities, lesser means people to get in the space. And I'm like a you know poor farm country kid. But like if I wanted to open a new casino in Las Vegas, do you think I'm gonna are they gonna have a social equity program for that? Or like, oh, you had a gambling problem. Now you can be Steve <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It, isn't
1: that so strange, though. You have a gambling problem. How would you like to own a casino? You know. But then that's kind of like, oh, you were ensnared in the cannabis prohibition because you were, you know, using or selling it illegally.
2: How would you like a cannabis license? And these things, it's totally unfair and it's totally effed up. And we need to like work to make this change. And we can't make it all right overnight. But one thing that I do know. if we make the wrong arguments and we just get angry about this nothing happens and the big schmucks own the industry and sell us garbage and kill the planet and profit off of it so if you want to do this what's unique about your skills what market are you looking at is it the right market at the right time like let's make a big grow in colorado i'm like why there's 1100 of them already and like they're selling pounds almost the cheapest anyway so unless you're going to come in big at scale and efficient. Why would you go into an established market? And some of these markets that look established, they're not like Florida or Massachusetts or Illinois. It's just they've been very controlled by key small individuals. So think who else do you need as part of your team and not make the argument like this sucks. This isn't fair. This is a racist industry. There's been major problems with it. Yes, it continues to grow, but we only can grow together. You need the finance experience. You need the people that do HR. You need good tech background people. You need people with the story that people are going to be engaged in reading and supporting. It can't just be your story or the best weed ever. That's usually less than five percent of what's important to a company. Even though good genetics, good cultivation is really important. I can train a greenhouse manager who grew poinsettias for thirty years how to grow cannabis in less than a day, pretty efficiently. Then they don't have bad habits either. So, um, you know, <laughs> nice. <laughs> Yeah, master growers, I, I usually call them master uh, F-ups, but they're not master business. a lot of them. and Some that are, have scaled into this, but using their skill sets as part of an ecosystem of a company, that can work. But never let one person's ideas design the whole operation. It has to be like what's worked in other jurisdictions. Can you show us that? Do you have references on this? Can you grow more than 100 plants at a time? Can you grow 20,000 at a time? Very, very, very different.
1: Yep. And these are all elements of due diligence and other things that you should be doing in your corporate entity that you have because you have a team and you're making decisions and you're trying to get one of those licenses. But very often it's an entrepreneur that thinks he's going to be able to hold
2: the whole thing. And I'm like, "Uh, you're from Oklahoma, aren't you? (laughs) I mean, that's a statement. you almost have to use metric again after, uh, what, almost three years of not having to use seem to sell tracking because it was too hard? For
3: well, now, they're, they're actually uh, coming around to closing that out. It's going to be one of those closed markets come August where no more licenses unless – so if you're in Oklahoma, like I have a buddy who that two-year limit, uh, his shit's about to hit right after that when they close the market. So there's a lot of bullshit going on over in Oklahoma where they're closing that market and, and, and doing things – but Nick, you bring up a great point about like, you know, best practices and eco-friendly and whatnot, and the consumer, which you know most cannabis consumers don't want to like trash their. You know, is there any like labeling that you think will be out there that we can like say, hey, this one's been certified, not you know green, sure it's been using or, or organics, but also in a greenhouse or you know soils.
2: We we, we have seen um you know and that, that's where yeah like living soil companies and others you know something got to know about. You know, cultivation, like we've all had crappy Cisco tomatoes that look like a tomato, but don't taste good at all. And you're like, what is this thing? That's usually a hydroponic tomato that was grown like through crappy commercial agriculture in a greenhouse, maybe. But remember the environmental impact of hydroponic to make not only rock wool or like all of the different nutrients, like very intensive processes with acids, bases, and temperatures, like for phosphorytic acid, uh Bosch experiments, things you can make literally nuclear like atomic bombs with that yeah. uses fertilizer you're like hmm. so how do we ripen it ethylene gas <laughs> <laughs> so j- just know that some of those things um they're not the most environmental state by state i have seen like certified sun grow a lot of people come up with these certification processes but none of them are super bona fide or accepted yet and there are tons of companies that do massive greenwashing out there too i mean not like a seventh generation or others but So we do have a need for that, but whenever you can see like greenhouse or outdoor and like choose and see if you can like try that, we did blind tests with like over a hundred consumers. They couldn't tell from look, taste, or, you know, from like most greenhouse to indoor cannabis. Like there are times you can grow some really, really good indoor, but at the cost of production, no. So we're still lacking some of those testing certifications to like show that operators that You know, right now ESG is sexy and a lot of investors need that. And also consumers are starting to pay attention to that. So- And it gets back to the capital raising. Yeah. So like it's gonna cost you a lot of money to do either one. Mm
1: -hmm. And so uh, which one are you gonna have an easier time getting somebody to strike a check that's not
2: in the hundreds of thousands, but in the millions. Always millions. Like I can't do anything (laughs) for seven figures for almost any sort of company in this space. That sounds cocky and arrogant, but it's right. (laughs) It's a fact. You know, an expensive industry. And if you want to get in, like if you wanted to make a hotel, if you wanted to make a restaurant, it's capital intensive. You got to get buy-in. And just because you're going to grow weed or some amazing CBD dog biscuit, you know, so are a million other people. So what's unique about your license? What if you can't grow weed? What's the value of this building that you're asking $20, $30 million to build? Like what happens if like the one person who's so good on your application that grows weed? What if they die or get hit by a bus or lose their mind? You, know, you have to make companies that are insulated of individuals that can operate like thinking like a company instead of thinking like a mountain. That's but, it. Like, all of those different things is to really get say yes to this anymore. SOPs. Yep. Yeah, SOP is very true. Yeah. SOPs are helpful for gathering dusk. Daily checklists are great for like the day-to-day workers that make those like go from really cons- like big things down to like what's most important for the day-to-day workers but having compliance checks with those audits for those, not just buying templates that aren't about your operation, right? Things matter. Like New Jersey right now, just want a bunch more retail licenses there for adult use. It takes some two to three months to go through like all the SOPs that weren't even a part of the application for compliance checks while you're building the license. So if you wait, build your license, get your certificate of occupancy and then like go to like, start growing and selling. They're like, Hey, we need to see all your SOPs it's in the law. So like, you have to start on some of those things early and you could be spending $50,000 on building some of those things from scratch. If you haven't ever done it before, Like, at least do your homework to know what's going to be required for those. Because the documents, especially my international operations, winning a license is about 80 to 90% based on the documentations and GXP standards. GXP? GXP, like good, good processing. No. GAP is good agricultural practices, GACP more important than GAP, good agricultural collection practices, GMP good manufacturing practices, GDP good distribution practices, GLP good laboratory practices and global grasp which is like fair trade for that. And then there's also different versions by continent like EU GMP. So if you're if you're producing cannabis domestically One thing to really look at are international GXP standards that the U.S. will require when federal legalization happens. So if you don't want to stop your operations when federal does, start doing OSHA standards now, USDA standards. Now, an awesome thing, hemp is legal under the Farm Bills and Ag Improvement Act. So the USDA is already giving pesticide guidance to hemp farmers and like genetics and stabilization requirements, um, methodologies. It's the same plant, just a different, you know variety of this like based on yeah. drugs. so look at what the usda is telling hemp people to do it's going to be probably pretty similar to what they tell cannabis people to do long term and never use a pesticide that's not allowed on tobacco even though that seems crazy for most of us that's the only other agricultural commodity that has pyrolysis data about burning it and smoking that plant after pesticides are on it and that oh. the usda has really already said that and we did in colorado is like the pesticide work group like that's the only one we have data for, for what happens when you burn a pesticide and inhale it. So let's only use things like that keyed up to like our specific problems. But you shouldn't need pesticides if you grow correctly and have a good IPM plan, beneficial insects, you know, guardian plants. You need. Know, you put beneficial insects in the uh, greenhouses? Oh yeah. Every single greenhouse of ours has about 20 different species of beneficial insects from like nematode basis that live in the media that fly around. I mean, I, I even use some sorts of sprays Where it's a fungus that its favorite food source is like a different type of bacteria that might hurt cannabis. Every one of our greenhouses has lemongrass. We'll have eggplants. We'll have marigolds. Certain things that like the bad bugs love those plants even more than cannabis. So then we can see on those plants when we have a pest problem before it's cannabis. They'll go from like cannabis to those plants. It also makes the greenhouse way more pretty and colorful. Like, oh. <laughs> it really helps with the feng shui of the greenhouse. Yeah, it's, it's way cheaper, but beneficial insects, like you have to put those in at certain times because it takes a while for their population to get up. And okay. If they don't have a food source, they die. So you're always introducing those. But a big thing to know, lots of other crops are different, but beneficial insects for cannabis, you have to be careful about buying from operators that they sell you the eggs of those on sawdust because that sawdust is cellulose and it'll get stuck in a bud. And then that's where rot will start to happen from the sawdust of something that you were using to introduce eggs into a greenhouse. So and there's other products that we use, um, you know, not, not a problem to share like some of those resources in the future, but my, my IPM programs usually cost less than $2,000 a month per acre. Nice. We, don't, we don't have like pesticide issues. We only use organic based products, never use anything in a facility that's not food grade ever be it packaging, be it sprays, just think every product you ever make is for your sick, dying grandma and every one of your employees is your mom. You would never put them in a situation that would hurt them. So like, even though you might make a little more money doing something long-term, it's gonna cost you the world. So like, you gotta be so mindful in your operations because getting that paper, the piece of paper is one thing for the license, keeping it, maintaining it, running it, getting to like your certificate of occupancy, your grand opening, most people I see win licenses in states, less than 50% of them even get to a grand opening. That's where the real work happens after getting the license. But that's the gatekeeper. And if you do anything other than focus on your license before you got it, you're wasting time on the wrong things in the wrong order.
1: Nice. Yep. Hey, uh, Nick, I want to thank you for stopping by the show and, and dropping a whole bunch of knowledge and wisdom on our uh, audience that uh, is hopeful in the cannabis entrepreneurial world, which is still pretty new. But uh, highly regulated.
2: And, you know, good pun indeed. I would have joined you on your 420 break minus being in Wisconsin, my home state, as a kid. But when I cross the border here in about 20 minutes after this, I'll make sure to support the Illinois very limited operators with their very expensive product. Because then I got to cross through Nebraska and Kansas. And let's just say the dry states. Never wow. There. Just only enjoy where it's legal. Um, yeah. But- yeah. Definitely been.
1: Yeah, a- I, I I feel so bad about Wisconsin. You're from there. That's where I, w- I went to law school, and I still have my stupid law license there. It's an inactive status, but like it's a diploma privilege. You graduate from law school, they swear you in the next day. It's amazing, uh, and so uh, but they have absolutely zero license game. They,
2: they don't. Have, do they don't have
1: medical. They don't have adult use. They got squat, and it has to do with redistricting. And so like the gerrymandering that's gone on and people are like, oh, I can't believe that sometimes you get political. I'm like, I'm just mentioning voting records. Don't think that I'm passing judgment on people. But for some reason, 98 percent of the time they vote against it. Why do you think safe banking got stripped? You think it was because, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders said, take it out of there. Come on. Seriously.
2: <laughs> oh, Bernie. miss, miss Bernie.
3: <laughs> but Schumer's no better because he can just pass the Morak, put it on the
2: floor. Let's do it. At least they don't have line item veto like Wisconsin does for governor privileges. Oh goodness. Wow.
1: Well, you know, we've
2: ended this in a positive note and kept it light. Uh Nick, where could people find you? Um, 3ccannabis.com. Um, you know, Nick at multiversecap.com as well. You know, we've got a couple hundred different companies that we've invested into and started working with. We're always raising from additional accredited investors and deploying capital to good good opportunities. And at the end of the day. I'm mission driven to make sure that people have access to this plant. We don't kill the planet and doing it. And we've got once in a lifetime to work together to do this. So I never thought I'd be doing cannabis hundred percent of the time, 16 years now, but uh, it's really the only thing worth doing. So if if you need any help with operations, advice on licensing, you know, good vendors um, been around for a long, long time and our names, all that we've got. So um, yeah, definitely feel to reach out if you have any questions or we can help.
1: Cool. All right, guys. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. All mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm.
0: Oops, oops, oops. Mm-hmm.